would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning. As we begin, I also want to uh, welcome those who are listening online or who listen to these messages during the week. Uh, it's wonderful to know that we have a wide, wider audience than just those of us who are here on Sunday morning as well. And we appreciate you um, following along in these messages and trust that they'll be a blessing to you as well. Today, again, we're in Hebrews chapter 3, working through this particular book, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6, and I want to read that for us as we begin. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, would you help us to hear what you want to say to us today? We bring our circumstances, we bring what's going on in the world and all of those thoughts with us today, and you have a word for us, a word of encouragement and hope. And I pray, Father, that you would grant me the words to be able to express that and help us to hear what it is you want us to take away today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the passage that we are looking at this morning, the writer sets out to show us that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, for most of us, we would hear that and we would think, why is that even necessary to say? Of course we believe that Jesus is greater than Moses. But at the time in which he was writing, he is writing to Hebrews, to Jewish believers who have come to place their faith in Jesus, but they have a very high regard for Moses. To the Jews, Moses was not only their greatest leader, he was regarded as the greatest of all men, ever. I mean, they held him in very high regard. And the writer of Scripture here does nothing to disparage Moses at all. He is a great man. But he is pointing us to Jesus as the one who is greater still. Think with me, though, about why Moses was so highly regarded. He was highly regarded for several reasons. Number one, Moses had been chosen by God for a unique task. He was to lead the people of Israel out of their slavery, their bondage in Egypt, into the promised land. That was no small task at all. His life was miraculously spared as a child. At a time when all the other Hebrew males were being killed and drowned in the Nile, Moses' family placed him in a basket, praying that God would spare his life, and he was rescued, drawn from the Nile. And God providentially watched over him, and that not only was his life spared, but he would be raised in Pharaoh's household, and his own mother would be the nursemaid who would care for him. God's call on his life was dramatic. 
When Moses fled from Egypt and went into Midian, he had an encounter with God that was dramatic. God called to him from the burning bush. And here he saw this bush that was not consumed by fire, and God spoke to him. And in that place, God would reveal to him his own name, I am who I am. God would perform extraordinary signs and wonders through Moses as he went back to Pharaoh in Egypt, calling him to let God's people go. There would be the plagues that would occur across the land, the waters of the Nile turned to blood, the plagues of frogs and gnats and flies, of boils and hail, of locusts and darkness, and finally the death of every firstborn male. Moses was Israel's greatest prophet. In Numbers 12, the Scripture says this is the Lord speaking, and he says, with other prophets, I speak to them in visions and dreams, but not so with Moses. With Moses, I speak to him face to face. He sees the very form of God. He speaks to him as a man would speak to his friend. That's a powerful testimony of the unique position that Moses was given. Moses was Israel's lawgiver. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He gave him all of the detailed instructions for how the tabernacle was to be built, how each of the uh, implements in that tabernacle were to be used. He gave him the civil and the ceremonial law. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would write the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, as we call it. He was Israel's first great leader, an advocate before God. Not only would he lead them through their time in the wilderness, but time and time again he would intercede with God on their behalf. Lord, have mercy. Lord, spare your people. By any measure... That is an impressive list of accomplishments. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is greater still. Moses was a type of the one who would come in the future. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses would write that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. Those words written around 1440, B.C., 1,400 years before Christ, testified that God was going to send one in the future who would be a prophet like me. He will come from among your own people, and you must listen to him. And you hear in that phrase even the words that God would speak at Jesus' baptism when he would say of Jesus that this is my beloved son, this is my son in whom I am well pleased Listen to him. Many prophets would come after Moses in the line that would follow. And all of these prophets would be used by God to speak to Israel and Judah in their times as a nation, as a monarchy. But there'd only be one Jesus. There's only one Messiah, one who would fulfill all of these promises completely. And that's why the author of Hebrews writes that we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Look at verse 1. He said, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, the word brothers there is inclusive, 
who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. The word therefore reminds us of everything that he has said up to this point. It goes back to all that we looked at last week, for example, in verses 10 to 18 in chapter 2. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's our trailblazer. He's that pioneer who has paved the way of salvation for us to follow. He's our brother who took on human flesh, who became like us, and who has adopted us into his family, and who is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's our liberator, our champion, who entered into that battle with sin and death and Satan and arose victorious over them all. He has won the victory. And when we place our faith in Him, His victory becomes our victory too. And He is our great high priest who intercedes for us before the Father's throne. He's the one whose blood has covered all of our sins. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And to that list, he's going to add one more title. He calls him the apostle and high priest whom we confess. That word apostle is unique. This is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus is called an apostle. And I really think here it should be capitalized. He is the apostle. He's the first apostle before there were any other apostles. That word apostle means sent one. And he was sent by his father to earth on a mission. He was sent by God to accomplish our salvation. And Jesus will say to the apostles at the end of John's gospel that as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And that sending includes you and me, that he calls all of us who know him as Savior and Lord to be his evangelists, to be his messengers in this world, to go out and to make disciples and help others to know him. So the writer of Scripture is saying to us, remember your calling. We are holy, holy brothers and sisters who have been set apart for God. We belong to him. We share in a heavenly calling. That's the direction that we are headed. That's where God is calling us to. We are on our way to heaven. And we have a glorious future ahead of us. But the goal isn't to sneak into heaven as quietly as we can. The goal is to bring as many people with us as we can. The goal is to share the good news news of Jesus Christ so that they can come into a relationship with Him too. And do you think about that? Do we think about that during the week? Do we look at the opportunities we have around us and see them as opportunities to be a witness for Christ and to share the hope that God has placed in our heart? That's what the writer of Scripture is saying. Don't be discouraged. Don't be intimidated by what is going on in our world. But stand firm and share the good news of the Gospel. We are to fix our thoughts on Jesus because he is able to help us when we are tempted. If you look at the last uh, verse in chapter 2, it says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. 
Whether the temptation is a specific area where we are struggling with sin, or if it's the temptation to quit, or the temptation to give in to pressure or persecution, Jesus can help us because he understands what that's like in our world. He entered into our suffering. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. But there is a part that we must do. And that part we must do is we must look to Jesus and keep our eyes on him. You know, when I think about this phrase, fixing our thoughts on Jesus or looking to Jesus, I think about, you know, when we drive a car, take something as simple as that. When we drive our car, rule number one is keep your eyes on the road. I mean, it's really being stressed in these days when we have all of these other gadgets that can occupy our attention. And we're hearing messages all all over the place, don't text and drive. Set the phone down, put it aside, don't text and drive. Why? Because distracted driving is dangerous. It can be deadly. I mean, what it's doing is it's keeping your eyes off of the road, and even if it's just for a moment or a little bit, and you turn away and you're looking at something else, things can happen. Stuff can pop up, or the person in front of you may stop suddenly, and you might not be ready for it. In that same way, in our Christian life, the Scripture is saying we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus because life is hard. And there are challenges and there are things that come up and we need to be aware of Satan's schemes or attacks or how he might try to undermine our faith. Fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the one who's run this race before us and we are to follow him. Distractions in the Christian life can also be deadly and can lead us away from him. If we really want to walk with God, If we want to overcome the challenges and temptations on our life, then we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And secondly, he'll say, don't turn back. Don't turn back. And we see that in verses 2 to 5. The writer's greatest fear for these young Christians is that they would turn back to Judaism and fall away from Christ. That's really why he is writing. And he will say to them in verse 2 that, you know, that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. But Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Moses was great, but Jesus is greater by far. And look at the contrast that he makes here between Moses and Jesus. I mean, he's saying that both of them were faithful in their mission, in their sphere of influence. But if you look at Moses, his primary ministry was to Israel as a nation and a people. But Jesus' ministry is for the world. He came to die for the sins of the whole world. Moses was a lawgiver. He showed us how we could live in a way that would please God, but we also saw how we all fell short of God's standards of holiness and perfection. 
Jesus comes and he's the liberator who takes upon himself our sins, who dies in our place, who pays the penalty that we deserve so that we can be saved. Moses was a member of God's house. He was part of the family. He's our brother too. But Jesus, he's the builder of God's house. He's the builder of everything. And finally, Moses was a servant in God's house. And he was faithful in that role. But Jesus, he's the son. He's the son of God who came and gave his life for you. That's powerful. There's no comparison. Moses was great. He doesn't disparage that at all. But Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God who came and gave His life for us. He'll make the point when you think about a house, who is greater? Is the house greater than the person who built the house? No. You look at a magnificent building, you know, is the building greater than the architect? No, the architect who made the building is even greater. And in the same way, if we're out enjoying this beautiful world and we look at the mountains or the lakes or the forests and we think, wow, that is just incredible. Or that, that sunrise this morning was just so beautiful to see. What's greater, the sunrise or the God who set the sun and the stars in place? Fix our thoughts on Jesus and put our trust in him. Moses was faithful in the work that God assigned him to do. And the writer doesn't go into the details of Moses' life. He doesn't mention, well, you know, there was that one time when Moses got really mad at the Israelites and God had commanded him to speak to the rock and the water would come out and Moses was mad and so he struck the rock twice, taking out his temper rather than speaking to it. And because of that disobedience, Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. He doesn't mention those faults that even Moses had. Instead, he looks at the whole of Moses' life and he says that Moses was faithful in all that God asked him to do. That's encouraging. I mean, that's the best that any of us can hope for as well. I mean, we are all sinners and there are going to be times in our life when we are going to mess up or we're going to do something that wasn't right, that God did not ask us to do. We will sin, we will stumble. But by the grace of God, we can get up again and our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. And what we want is that the overall direction of our life, the consistency of our life, the habit or pattern of our life is that we are being faithful to God in all things. We can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's our desire, and that's what the Scripture is encouraging us to do. That just as Moses was faithful, just as Jesus was faithful, God is calling us to be faithful even to death. Wow. Where do we find that strength? Where do we find that power? It is in Jesus Christ. Jesus was faithful in everything and he can help us in our struggles if we will turn to him. So don't turn back. I mentioned that that was his fear for the church, that in this setting in which they are living, being persecuted as believers, where in those early days in Rome, Judaism still enjoyed some protection under Roman law. Christians did not. 
and now they're being kicked out of the synagogue and they are meeting in house churches and some of them are being arrested or harassed and this wave of persecution is going to come under Nero and other Roman emperors. It was tough. And he is saying to them, I don't want you to fall away because to fall away from Jesus Christ is to lose everything. You know, when we think about that, I mean, this fear of falling away is a fear that I think people have for their children. We want to bring our children up to know the Lord, to make a commitment to Him, but we know that they need to own that. Their faith needs to be their own. They need to personalize it and grow in their commitment to Jesus Christ. And it breaks the hearts of parents when they see their kids who came to church or Sunday school or want or a youth group get into those years as a young adult, and they drift away. They stop going to church, or they don't think it's important that they continue in fellowship with other believers. And we pray that they will come back to Christ and hold on to Him. Or I think about as a pastor. I mean, that's my concern for all of you who are a part of this church and those who come. And, I, and uh, every now and then, you know, you see people who were here and then they're gone and you wonder, what happened? Where'd they go? Or I've seen people through the years who were here when someone in our church maybe took the initiative to bring them to a Bible study or bring them to a small group and they were growing it seemed in their faith and they're starting to develop habits where you feel like good good they're on a good road and then something changed in their life and they stopped and they fell away from Christ the warning here is to fall away from Christ is to lose everything We are to hold on to Jesus to the very end. And that's the third point that he makes here. Hold on to Jesus. We see that in verse 6 when he says that Christ is faithful as a son over God's house and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The challenge is to hold on to Jesus in both the good times and the difficult times. To hold on to him regardless of what may come into our life. Suffering, pain, sorrow, loss, persecution, trials, whatever it may be, we're to hold on to Jesus. We are God's house. If we have placed our faith in him as our Savior and Lord, we belong to his family. He's talking about believers. He's talking about the church. We are the living stones that are mentioned in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, when Peter would say that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're joined together. Jesus is the cornerstone. We sang about that this morning. We are those living stones. He's the prominent stone. We take our alignment, our direction from him. And we are joined together by our faith in Christ as Lord. But there's a condition. And the condition here, he says, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, We are to persevere because failure to persevere is a sign that a believer is not 
or that a person is not a believer. Let me say that again. Failure to persevere is a sign that a person is not a believer in Christ. Now, only God knows our heart. But from the outside, if we see someone who made a profession of faith but then turns away from Christ and has no desire to go to church, no desire to fellowship with other believers, there's no reason to think that they are saved regardless of their previous commitment. And sometimes people will, you know, point back and they'll say, well, you know, I was baptized, whether as an infant or later in life. I, I was baptized, I made a commitment then, or I prayed a prayer, or I said, uh, you know, the sinner's prayer. And they're putting their trust in those things. They're putting their trust in baptism. They're putting their trust in a prayer rather than putting their trust in Christ and walking with him every single day. Failure to persevere is a sign that a person is not a believer. Those who truly know Christ will hold on to him. That's, that's the book of Hebrews. You're going to get this warning that comes again and again and again. These are real warnings. Hold on to Jesus. Stand firm. Trust him. And the good news is that he is also holding on to us but it is a serious warning. And I think about that today with what we were talking about in terms of uh, we prayed for the persecuted church. And I think of those believers who are living in countries where it is hard to be a Christian. It may cost you your life. You may lose your home. You may lose your business. You may end up in prison because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Those are difficult circumstances under which to live. I think of the book that Randy Alcorn wrote about believers in China. It was a book called Safely Home. And the person who was the central character in that uh, book, every morning he would get up and he'd ask the question, is today the day I die? Is today the day I die? I mean, that's a different reality, isn't it? We don't wake up in the morning thinking about that here. Is today the day I die? But that's a reality for many believers. And how do they live under such circumstances? And how do we live under the circumstances in which we are, where Satan is so active in trying to lure people away from Christ, trying to tempt us with other things? How do we stand firm? Where do we find strength? Where do we find joy to persevere? Well, listen to this story from Nick Ripken that was written in the book, The Insanity of God. He said, I remember how my very first Chinese contacts back in southern China had explained the government's motivation for persecuting believers. Why was the Chinese government so concerned about Christians and about what they believe? And he said, it's not that the communists oppose or even care about what Jesus taught his followers. I mean, Jesus taught his followers to good, do good deeds. That's okay. That's a good thing. That's fine. Their concern was something quite different. Their concern is that any commitment to something or someone other than the state was considered a serious threat to government authority and control. What they cared about most was political allegiance. And they understood clearly the threat from those who declared 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, a lordship that would not be shared with the state or with any other power. It's the same thing that Rome objected to in the days of the early Christians. They wanted people to swear their allegiance to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord. And when the believers would not do that and they would declare that Jesus is Lord, that's what they were upset about. That's what made them look like they were not loyal to the state even though they were good citizens as well as good Christians. Well, Nick writes, by the end of my time in China, my understanding had grown, and I began to see how these believers dealt with that kind of persecution. And let me give you an example. The security police will regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. And the police will come to them and they'll say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. And then the believer who owns the property will respond with something like this. Do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you will need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. And the security police will not know what to make of that answer, so they will say, well, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. And when we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believer will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Well, then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing. Then we'll put you in prison, the police will threaten. And by now, the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives in prison and set them free. And we will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. That's amazing. That's courage. That's real hope in Jesus Christ, that no matter what the world may do, we can trust him. You know, when I think about what took place in Paris this week, and I think of those that were there, I don't know how many believers there are or were there. But I thought it was interesting that in this time of crisis in that nation, the churches did get together. And at a moment of silence across the city, all the church bells in Paris rang out at one time. A sign of unity, a sign of confidence or faith or trust in God at that moment. And that's what we need. How do we stand against such evil in our world? Where do we find the strength to persevere and to go on? We find it in our hope in God. And so the scripture says, hold on to your courage and the hope of which we boast. Life is hard. It's not always fair, is it? It's difficult. It's unjust. There are things that happen in all of our life where we go, you know, God, that isn't right. Why did this happen? Why did you allow that to happen? And God is sovereign over all of that. 
And he uses us to be a witness to others in those circumstances of life that are difficult or hard or painful. And we must trust in him. But sometimes it does. It's a struggle. We struggle with our attitude. We may get discouraged or we may uh, feel like, you know, uh, we need to keep talking and sharing all these problems in our world. And I came across this particular quote that I thought was a good word for me too, as well as for all of us. Many years ago, Richard John Newhouse was being driven from the Pittsburgh airport to a speaking engagement. And during the drive, one of his hosts persisted in decrying the disintegration of the American social fabric and the disappearance of Christian values from our culture. And he was kind of going through this list of all these things that were wrong with our world and are going bad and how people have fallen away and how our government and nation is kind of turning away and away from Christ. There were too many things to recount, but this person tried to recount all of them as they were riding in that car. And finally, when they stopped, Pastor Newhouse offered these words of advice. He said, the times may be bad, but they are the only times we are given. And remember that hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a deadly sin. Don't despair. Live as people of hope. Life is hard, not fair, it's difficult, it's unjust, but there is a way that we can handle that. We fix our thoughts on Jesus, and we look to him for the strength that he alone can give. We refuse to turn back. We're not going to fall away. I think of that old chorus that we used to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We hold on to our courage and the hope that he gives us ultimately what we are holding on to there is we hold on to Jesus Christ and we trust him for the strength that he alone can give. Let's pray. Father, this is a good word for us today, especially in light of what we have seen happen in our world. And our hearts grieve and we, we mourn for those that have been lost and we cry out for justice. We cry out for deliverance and an end to the terrorism and violence in our world. But Jesus, our hope is in you. And I pray that you would help us to live differently as people who are on the road to heaven, as people who have good news to share with those around us and to tell others how they can know Christ as Savior and Lord. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and fill our hearts with hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.